Hey everyone, if you've been wondering why I haven't been posting podcasts lately, it's because I've been out in Sydney, Melbourne and Adelaide doing research for my new course. I've been visiting some of the top studios in visual effects, animation and motion design and have been interviewing them to develop my new eight-week course on how to market yourself as a creative professional. You can find out more and register your interest at mastersofmotion.com.au forward slash learn. Now let's get into the show. Hello, my name's Matthew Packwood and welcome to Masters of Motion. Each episode, I'll be talking to some of Australia's and New Zealand's leading motion design, animation and visual effects artists. Today, I'll be having a conversation with the creative director, Annabelle Dundas. Annabelle is a pioneer in the motion design industry. She launched her studio, Tilt Creative, back in the late 90s. Over a 20-year period, she's grown the studio to two offices in Melbourne and London. She's worked for global brands including FIFA and the World Cup, as well as some of the world's top broadcasters including the BBC, the Disney Channel, National Geographic and Eurosports. Annabelle has been a leading figure in the broadcast design industry and has created some awesome work throughout her career. Thanks very much for taking the time to come in and chat with us today, Annabelle. No worries. I'm really looking forward to it. What are the important things people should know before they set up their own studio? I think what you underestimate as a creative is how much administration is required when setting up your own studio, how much time is spent doing HRE work um, and how much time is spent on the running of the actual business. What advice would you give to young leaders who were starting their own business? When I first opened Tilt in London, the age gap between myself and my staff was much closer and it's a big learning curve to work out how you set yourself up as the leader of the business and your relationship with staff. And when I first started the business, I very much wanted to be everybody's friend. And I found that actually a little bit of distance from people does make the running of the business uh, a better and more successful work community and environment. What are the main challenges that people face when they're running their own studio? I think when I set Tilt up in the UK, I was the sole owner of the business and one of the biggest challenges was not having a partner to discuss and brainstorm strategies surrounding how the business developed and where we where I took it. And when I took uh, Sophie on in the UK, when I looked to move back to Australia, actually bringing a business partner into the business um, helped build it and uh, helped it be more successful. So having a partner uh, eliminates the challenge, some of the challenges that you faced. 
it eliminates some of the challenges and then it brings on its own new set of challenges. But I think being a solo owner of a business is very lonely. It's difficult to get the relationship between you and your staff working well because if you're if you don't have another business owner to brainstorm with, you end up talking to members of the team and that's absolutely fine. I'm a very transparent person, uh, but sometimes you give people too much information which doesn't necessarily work in your favour. Yeah, I can understand that completely. Yeah, I definitely experienced, especially the isolation, but I tried to use mentors too. I had a couple of mentors running which sort of helped me with those things, especially when I was under pressure. And I actually think that would be a good system, having a mentor there. And I think my husband has, I'll brainstorm with him a lot about what to do with the business, but when you both get busy, um, it's hard for him to focus on what I'm doing as well as his own. Have you earned more income being a studio owner over your career than what you would have earned if you had been working full-time for someone else? I have never sat down and done the calculations, but I would guess so. When I left my business, I actually got a slightly higher paid job and didn't work weekends. And look, I think if I'm averaging it out over a period of the last 20 years, which is as long as I've been in business, over a period of 20 years, I think I'm I'm ahead. Um, but there has definitely been years where that hasn't been the case, that I, I could have earned more working for someone else. Throughout the years, have you paid yourself superannuation and do you think superannuation is important? I didn't pay super, well, there isn't superannuation in the UK. There's something called national insurance. And as a business owner, there are better ways to pay yourself in London. Uh, Since being home in Australia, I have paid myself superannuation. I think superannuation is hugely important to protect yourself for when you want to retire. It makes total sense. Young freelancers should be paying themselves superannuation and people own studios because I missed a few years and that was quite bad for my overall super. Absolutely. I returned to Australia and I think I had diddly squat in my superannuation account. Having been home for the last eight years, I've had to come up with a strategy to ensure that I do have enough in my super. Uh, I think it's really important as leaders of the industry, as employers uh, within the industry, that we are paying our freelancers superannuation. It's, it's a legal requirement. What are the main challenges that people face when managing a studio and having a family? Before I had a family, I would never be the first to leave the studio. I was always last out the door. When you have a family, your priorities change and it's not that your business is not important, but the pool to be home is much stronger. And I think the biggest struggle I had was leaving people in the office to continue and finish work off and me be home with the kids. Since having children, I am not only out the door on time but also encouraging everybody else to work sensible hours. Is it harder to run a successful business with children than what it was beforehand? I think you delegate more. And I think you have to trust people more. It's very difficult to get good staff and when you get them, you hold on to them. I think most studio owners are probably self-confessed control freaks. So 
actually handing stuff over to people is more of the challenge than finding somebody who is appropriate to hand it over to. And do you think that like if you want to do big things in your life, do you think it's important to try and do them before you have children? What do you mean by big things? What's a big thing? Something that takes a lot of effort, like 70 hours a week for a whole year sort of thing. Absolutely. I think it's much more difficult to take on big projects when you've got kids, your time is divided. Interestingly enough, I took no maternity leave when I had my first. Yep. And then I took six months off when I had my second. And that's because I'd found a business partner in London um, to come on board and help run the business. But still six months was fairly minimal. Yep. And that is one of the challenges of owning your own business. It's hard to just take maternity leave. You can't just walk out the door and say, see you're all in a year. It doesn't work that way. So I have uh, restructured things recently because I actually think with one starting high school, it's I feel my time is more valuable now for him. Yep. In regards to the business side of running a studio, what are the important things you need to know in regards to working with contractors and freelancing? In the UK, the rules surrounding paying freelancers, national insurance and all of those things are quite different. So I must admit it took me a couple of years being back in Australia to really understand what my obligations as an employer were and I have spent a considerable amount of time and money with accountants and lawyers getting proper contracts drawn up for freelancers and casual staff. Yep ensuring that I am paying people correctly and ensuring that people's classifications, i.e. whether or not they're a freelancer or whether or not they're deemed to be a casual member of staff, are correct. Yeah. I think as designers and creative directors, there isn't a great deal of information or schooling out there about how best to put a business together. There are lots of other organisations like the um, Builders Association who provide their members with a lot of info about how to set up businesses. Here are template contracts. Yep. Unfortunately, our industry isn't that large and even being a member of AGDA or BDA, there isn't a great deal of support for people um, helping them and pointing them in the right direction as to how they should be negotiating and engaging with freelancers and contractors. So are you paying the your contractors superannuation and how's that going? Because that's a lot of this stuff's not talked about in the industry and, and there's no real guidelines uh, to sort of follow either. Yes, I'm uh, definitely paying all freelancers superannuation if they are motion designers. Part of the tax officer's legislation is anybody who creates um, that is animated or goes on uh, film or television and internet, there is a special tax code that says they need to be paid super. Yep. So that's part of what I negotiate when I offer freelancers a contract and all super is paid. Yep. The shame is that many freelancers that I speak to don't realise that that is an obligation that all employers have um, and many of them aren't being paid properly. Yeah. And and do the freelancers themselves want to get you to pay into their super or would they rather just a flat rate and go against what the law is saying? I think many freelancers insist that the 
the super is paid on top of their wage because they don't see the value of it. And sometimes that will price them out of the project if they've got a high day rate and then they don't see the super as value um, and they don't care if you pay it or not. It does make them very expensive and there are just some projects that you can't afford to pay them for because I refuse to not pay the super. I, you know, I insist on paying the super and for me that's part of their day rate. So when you negotiate their day rate, what's the negotiation like? Do you usually come with them with a fixed price or...? Uh, do you negotiate depending on the quality of the work or how do you actually negotiate? Most of the time I accept what a freelancer's day rate is. I very rarely go back and negotiate um, simply because if, in my experience, if you pay people what they feel they are worth, then they will do their best effort. Yeah. If you negotiate them down, then really they don't give 100% because there's always that little niggle in the back that they're not being paid what they could get elsewhere. I try as much as I can to be flexible with freelancers. I'll always say to freelancers that these are the days that I want um, you to work on the project, but if you get another offer and there's some flexibility around them, I understand that as a freelancer they need to make everything work and for their time to be as effective as possible. So when I had people coming into the studio and working on site, there was always that promise that if I could be flexible and give them the opportunity to fit other projects in amongst what we were doing, then I would do whatever I could. What TV, movies, music, magazines or books inspired you when you were growing up? I am a self-confessed raver. I wore pyjamas and went out to the back of the palace in the early 90s and had glow sticks and put my hands in the air and danced like I just didn't care. (laughs) I knew you were going to say it. (laughs) Frightening. Um, So I was very much influenced by um, the early 90s rave scene in Melbourne and my first proper job was working for the Face magazine in London in 93. So I did two years of uni and then I deferred and went to the UK. And at the time, the Face was one of the coolest street mags. It was where Courtney, uh, what's her name? I don't know. Kate Moss. Uh, The Face is where Kate Moss was discovered. And there were a lot of really awesome photographers and stylists and contributors working on the magazine. I had a year in the UK and I think that was a great influence being there at that time. And I came back to Australia and realised that actually international experience was really important. And the opportunities I got when I got back to Australia um, just by saying I've been working in London for a year and working on these this magazine. I actually worked on The Face and Arena because they were both published in the same building and by the same publisher. After your first stint in the UK, you returned to Australia and went to work at Extra. Is that where you discovered motion design and what did you learn in this period? At Extra, I spent the weekends learning After Effects and Media 100 um, and I was there for 18 months and then my now husband was transferred to Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia for work and then we went and then I worked for a big TV station in Malaysia called Astro. So I went from Extro to Astro. Astro was once again a very big learning curve and 
I was a designer in there but not an operator. There was a lot of people on flame and the flame was the size of a refrigerator. And then we decided that we would just keep travelling around the world and move to London. So I moved to the UK in about 96, turned up just as The Attic was deciding to extend their offer from print design into motion graphics. And I got a full-time job with The Attic and they were fun to work for. It was interesting because I was their first motion designer and I probably got away with a bit more simply because it was a bit of dark art and nobody really knew what I was doing. And the attic was a pretty, they were a bit of a sensation at the time. They were a bit of a sensation. There was a culture within the attic of working very long hours and was quite a caustic culture I found very competitive and the structure of the business was that designers would be played off against each other for projects, whereas I'd come from Extro, which was a very team-based, collaborative environment. It was definitely interesting to work in a business that people weren't encouraged to support each other but quite the opposite. And I think that definitely made me quite sure about how I would run a business and how best I worked. So after you left the attic... I left the attic and because I was their only motion designer, we had been doing work for a couple of quite big clients, Discovery Channel and Bloomberg, and they all came directly to me. Obviously, contractually, I wasn't allowed to approach them, but they came to me and I just started working freelance for them. Discovery, I did a series of really awesome projects for them and there was a couple of producers in there that I got along very well with. For many years, I did that sort of balance between freelance, small business. Um, And I can't remember exactly when I employed Ed, who was my first employee, Um, but I think it just got to the turning point where you're like, okay, this is more than I can handle on my own. I really was like not sleeping and just working and it was that decision to bring somebody on board to help me with the work. And when did you register Tilt? Oh, 99. So over the period of 20 years, you've grown your studio up to around 14 people, worked with both small businesses and global brands, had two different offices, had a partner who run the London office, opened a second studio in Melbourne, gone down to a couple of people and up again, Could you tell us about expanding and contracting your studio? The business has um, concertinaed from at one stage, I think we had 13, 14 employees between both offices and down to now currently it's back to me on my own um, in terms of full-time staff. And I think the industry changes hugely and it's, it's good to have the opportunity to expand and contract based on what projects you have in. But you've only recently gone just back to you on your own. April this year. So that's a pretty big change. It's awesome. (laughs) And you're very light, I would imagine. Yes. When I first went freelance and it was just me and I was very hands-on and doing everything myself, you're responsible. The buck stops with you. You're not relying on other people. And the problem is with when the business starts to expand, and you become less hands-on with the technology because you've grown and you've got kids and you're delegating. I did all of a sudden find myself in a position where I was very much beholden to other people. Yep. And that's not something that 
sits particularly comfortably with me. So I have reverted back to a business model where I am a lot more hands-on and responsible for what's happening and also I don't have a million mouths to feed and I can pick and choose the projects that look interesting and worth doing rather than saying yes to everything in order to feed mouths. What's the hardest thing that you had to learn to progress your career? To delegate and trust other people. There is a control freak that takes a lot of willpower. And I actually think one of the other hardest things to do is to have confidence in your own creative direction. I think in the early years you would have designers produce stuff and you would try and direct them in a particular way and they would occasionally push back. Yep. It's that internal battle where you're thinking to yourself, design is subjective and who's to say that I'm right? Yep. So quite often I would just go, okay, fine, let's send it to the client like this, let's see what they say. And it's interesting, I would say nine times out of ten the client comes back and they want it more like what's in my head. And obviously you've got a a rapport with a client because you share a similar aesthetic. Uh, Sometimes you're wrong, but more times than not, as a creative director, you're right. And it's just having the confidence to really clearly articulate to the designer that you're working with that you've done it this way, but I think it's better this way for a reason. And that's a very difficult relationship to have. And did you find that that experience in London really helped you when you come back to Australia or do you think... It no, I think it, yeah. it frustrates you when you come back to Australia because everything feels hugely parochial. Um, so yeah. I was used to working out of London and working with clients globally. So I was used to working with FIFA and UEFA and lots of people across Europe and in America and you come back to Australia and you pop up and visit clients in Sydney who are sceptical about taking on somebody who is in a different state. Yeah. When I first moved home and, you know, went and saw people in Sydney, they were like, but what, we don't understand, you're in Melbourne. I'm like, yeah, there's phones and email and ways to communicate that don't require you being face-to-face. So what year was that in? I We moved back in 2010. It was hard to win work unless you actually went up there and chased it down. Yeah. And, and, yeah, and Singapore's like that too. So yeah. I find with Asia you can email and call till the cows come home but you turn up there shake a hand and look someone in the eye and you'll walk out the door with a job. They're happy to work with international people and once you've met them and taken the time to go and visit them, they'll happily send you projects that you work on remotely, but I think you have to show them the respect of handing over a business card in two hands and and shaking a hand. So do you think that the, the Asian markets, there's actually good work to be had there and do you think that their design studios are as good as ours? Oh, absolutely. I think there is some great opportunities to work in Asia. The problem with Asia is that it's very difficult to maintain a level of competitiveness there. There are some awesome studios in Singapore that are highly competitive and I think are doing yeah. some really great work. There's a couple there's one studio in Singapore in particular that uses an amazing Cinema 4D animator that I know out of um, Eastern Europe. They're applying a similar approach to I have been recently of looking for clients globally, but also using freelance talent globally. I mean, there's a a host of amazing animators and designers from around the world. Why not tap into that market and collaborate with the best of the best? As I said, the problem with Singapore is that they are used to a particular price point and 
I find clients in Singapore don't always have big budgets. They expect a lot. They do love endless changes. It is difficult to be competitive. And do you find that they pay well, like as in within 30 days? Yes, absolutely. So I'd like to change directions now and talk about one of your biggest clients, FIFA. How did you get FIFA as a client and what's the relationship been like and the experience been like working on such a global brand? I was lucky enough to have a friend introduce me to FIFA and I did a small five-second ident for them and that was the start of quite a good long-term relationship. So working on World Cup 2006 was our first project for FIFA. Uh, Then we won a four-year contract with them creating all of their match graphics and opening title sequences for 25 events over a four-year period. Then we didn't win the next World Cup and we didn't win the next four-year contract, but we did a lot of match graphics for them and then we've just completed second four-year contract with them. So that relationship with FIFA has been over 10 years. Yeah. And FIFA's been your biggest client? I would say so, yes. Yeah. And I know you did a big talk on pitches a few years ago. How do you feel about pitches and do you think working for free is like a good thing to do? I tend not to pitch anymore. I think when you're a young company, absolutely, that's how you win work. That's how you establish yourself within the business. There are some really interesting pitch-based websites and businesses that have started up. Gennaro, I think, is doing some really interesting stuff. And I have registered with them and they have asked a few times recently if I will, they'll do a narrowed down uh, selection of people that they privately invite to pitch, but I'm, st- I'm still not pitching. Yeah. The best work that I did in my business was not one in pitches, it was one in coffees and boardrooms. Yep, yep. General sales and them having a job at the right time when mm-hmm. I hit them up. Yep. What was it like setting up in Melbourne and what was the challenges? Um, I think the biggest challenge in Australia is that there really isn't a university course that teaches motion graphics like there is in the UK. Um, There are three solid universities in the UK that produce motion designers, Ravensbourne, uh, Nottingham and Trent and really Central St Martins. And my biggest gripe in Australia is Billy Blue is reasonably new to the market. Swinburne's multimedia course is really focused on creating gaming designers. Everybody who's a motion designer in Australia is really self-taught. So you're saying there was a lack of talent to come in? Absolutely. My biggest challenge in Australia has always been finding good talent. And then you get them and then they realise they're good and then they go freelance. (laughs) There's like a lot of people who are not very good and then there's a percentage at the top who are very good. Yes. And they're very popular. There's not like that much in between. Yes. You know, you think about people like Ted who are so self-motivated. You know, when he started working for me, um, he really had no experience and taught himself everything in Cinema 4D. Yeah. And I think that's also difficult from a small studio perspective. Really, you need to have a structure that allows for mentoring when there aren't that many talented people out there and when the budgets don't allow for you to pay people um, big wages and then have a hierarchy of mentoring so that you've got a junior that's being taught by your senior. Yeah. Uh, it's difficult to get that structure working within a business. Yeah, well, I found that because I was a small business like yourself. And, yeah, the first three years I had junior people and it was very hard. And mm. then after that I said, that's it. 
no more junior people. Mm. I'm only getting senior people. Mm-hmm. Yes, but get, then you've got to have the budgets that cover their their yeah. salaries. Uh, I know, but I, I suppose the first person that I employed was a senior sales slash mm. marketing person to get those bigger budgets in. Do you know what? I've never had success with a, employing a marketing person. My experience has always been that unless it's me selling, it doesn't work. But obviously I've just not had the right one. I really like it when I've got someone who's much more equipped than me helping me. Uh, but in the end, yeah, I think that they've won clients but they couldn't do it by themselves and I couldn't do it by myself. Mm. It's a real team effort. Yep. Yeah. It's, if you get someone in and you, you're not doing it with them, it's very hard for them to get out and get work themselves. Yes, agreed. So what are the benefits of having two locations? So you don't have two locations anymore. No, but when we had two locations, it did work well, actually. We had a few projects that we would run a 24-hour clock on. So it meant, one, that you could have a broader pool of talent to choose from in terms of allocating projects to staff. So you could pick the most appropriate person for the job and they didn't necessarily have to be sitting next to you. It's great to actually be able to brief people, get them to work on it on their day, render it before they leave and then present to a client so the client has it at 9 o'clock when they come in in the morning and they've got a full day to formulate their feedback rather than you screaming down the phone at them, quick, quick, you know, we need your comments now in order to move forward for the day. Yeah. So that works quite well in terms of having the two studios. It also means that you've just got many more resources. If you have a tight deadline, you can be jumping on stuff. You can have things working in both studios. You can divide and conquer. The challenges, of course, with that is that it works well with After Effects and things that are fairly low in terms of the weight of files. But when you've got giant cinema files to be transferring back and forth, that is a bit problematic. Yeah. I subscribed to Creative Cloud, the team version, and never really managed to get it working, I think, as well as it should. Really, they've got a very good file sharing system as if you subscribe to it as a team. Yeah. Um, and I think if you really were setting up an office with double locations, it would be worth investing the time in getting that system to work. Talking about teams, what size team do you think is the best size and the most enjoyable to work on projects? I think there's two sides to that question. In terms of size of business, I think anything over 12 is a bit of a, not a nightmare, but requires a lot more infrastructure. So I've always tried to keep the business under 12 people because the second you hit over that, you've got to have, I think, separate HR and and a whole load of other support things that really you can't do on your own. In terms of the size of the best team of designers, it really depends on what the project is. I think if you ideally can have a 3D, a 2D and an art director on a project, that works really well. Uh, with then a creative director overseeing it also, perhaps four, uh, yeah. plus a producer. It's great to be able to have an independent art director who isn't necessarily on the tools um, to help direct the 3D and the 2D because quite often in my experience it's very difficult to find 3D ops who are creative designers as well. You you get people who are hugely talented from a, an application perspective but yep. um, need directing from an aesthetic perspective. The best people are the people who have the design 
and then learn the other things because then they can see the aesthetic and then they can master the technical side. If you've got two skills, animation, design or producing animation, you're much better off these days. So which were the most enjoyable projects that you've worked on in your career so far? One of the best projects I did was a trip to Japan for Channel 4 in London and it was a series of TV shows about Japan and it was, it was a season of Japan stuff. And we went out there and travelled all around Japan with a little crew, a really awesome DOP, a great producer and shot a whole load of gorgeous footage and then just came back and put these idents and on-screen packaging together. The Dino Venture stuff we did for Discovery Channel were an awesome project just because they were collaborating with a really great illustrator. They needed to be informative and there's actually something quite nice about grounding your design decisions in something that is information-based and educational for kids. We had a really decent period of time to work on them and it was stressful and you needed to kind of keep track of it all and really organise it, but they were a lot of fun and that was a, a big team. Can you discuss the major differences in the industry in the production methods from when you started until now? So when I first started, people were used to paying a fortune for flame, which I said, you know, they were the size of refrigerators and Inferno was a billion dollars a minute and there was very much a culture of uh, clients being entertained and sat and brought lattes and champagne in very expensive post-production suites. It was a great time. It was <laughs> Good time. <laughs> it was. Here is the menu for you to order your lunch from. Yeah, I used to always order those we lunches. We all put about 40 kilos on. Yeah. Um, and so when I came into the industry, After Effects was a new kid on the block and all of a sudden there were all these fresh young upstarts who were offering design and animation at a much cheaper rate and that's when people like Discovery were happy to, to come and get me to do little jobs. I think in my first year as a freelancer, I did over 100 projects. Wow. But they were all cheap and cheerful. I mean, I still think you get ad agencies who would much rather sit in a big post facility and have their lattes and their and their champagne. But there are small businesses that base their business model on a heap of just very talented designers and animators all working away in After Effects and Cinema 4D is really uh, where a lot of the industry sits now. So that was the change from the 90s. And I I think that there is a big change at the moment. Yes. Uh, And it's very reflective of that. The big change, I think, for the industry is is that studios seem to be becoming smaller, pretty much all contract-based. Yes. So all their employees are not Mm full-time. Uh, and there's heaps of little groups springing up and working together mm-hmm. or as individuals, and there's also that's changing the way that people do work. Yes, and that's the change that I've consciously made, that I'm, mm. I no longer have full-time staff and I am trying to find the best people globally to work with. So interestingly, I've got a freelancer in Melbourne who's been working with me a bit recently, um, and I've never met her. Face-to-face. I speak to her on the phone rarely and I think that's one of the biggest changes I've seen over the last 20 years, people's willingness to just communicate 100% through email. I was mortified the first time we pitched for a big job and I was emailed to say that we hadn't won it. Like I just was outraged about how rude 
that was after all the effort that we had put into a pitch, yep. not even to receive a phone call, whereas now that would be completely standard practice. How often does a f- I, I actually, if a client rings me, I know there's an issue. Like I get yeah. nervous if I see someone actually calling me. Well, this is very interesting because uh, I learned in the industry to use a phone when I began and I find that being able to talk on the phone and communicate with people is an excellent tool and mm. I th- actually think now that considering not many people are using it as much, that it's an actual benefit. If you can learn the art of using a phone. Yep. But people are nervous to do it. Uh, so often I'll sit next to a producer and just say, just call them. Like it's so much easier to just ring. But I think that's just me being but old school. It is so much easier to ring. It yeah. is so much easier. You can hear the reflections in their voice if they're, you know, and I always think presenting in person or pitching in person, but it's very unlikely to win unless you go talk to them, get a brief and do it in person. Yes. So the dichotomy there is that the globalisation of the industry and the shrinking of our resources locally and therefore us needing to find clients globally, find talent globally, makes it much more difficult for those one-on-one opportunities. Well, then you really need to go to Skype and video conferencing. Yes, yeah. We've got a Singapore client that loves a Skype meeting. That's what they prefer to do. And how do you think budgets and timelines have changed since you arrived back in Australia? I think budgets in Australia have always been smaller than the UK. It's a much smaller market. There isn't... Um, a justification for spending as much money on advertising and broadcast. I don't think there's a difference in timelines between the UK and Australia. We're used to people asking for things in a ridiculous period of time. My experience with timelines is that 90% of the time it's a false deadline and 90% of the time you'll hut to, you'll jump on board, you'll bust balls to get something done by deadline and then there'll be radio silence for a week and the client's actually got a week up their sleeve. Yeah, I think deadlines are mostly false. Do you think that you should charge more if the deadline is short? I've never had the opportunity to charge more if the deadline is short. We're always given a fixed fee. Rarely does a client come to me with an open checkbook and say how much. Always there is a fee that you are to work to. When you get that amount, say it's 15000 then often you can get to the end of that budget and then you charge more. I find that, that never is, happens. Well, it, it happened many times to me. Right. When we hit milestones and we fall behind, and sometimes I was a producer, I would then say, well, you've either got to hurry up in a nice way mm. or we've got to finish by this date or after that date you're going to be charged more. Sure. And that gives them the incentives to hurry up. And sometimes, yes, you're right, you go over that date by day and then you say, ah, it's not worth the, the argument. But I've found that a very good tight fixed deadline can actually make you be more profitable Yes, because they're hooning towards it and trying to get you towards it Mm. and then you finish just around the deadline and therefore you don't blow out. Yes, deadlines do work it to your advantage in that way. I find that if we run over in in time, that's our problem as a business, Um, that we've quoted on a job or we've agreed to do a project for a fixed amount of time. If we quote on something taking 20 days and it takes 30, that's, that's not the client's problem, that's my problem. In my experience, and I have done my fair share of that, that is an unsustainable way to run a business. 
Yes, which is why my new business model is I agree to do things for a fixed fee for a client and therefore anybody working on the project with me has agreed to do it for a fixed fee as well. And And there are lots of businesses that are now changing their model to work that way. Yeah. The problem with a lot of international clients is that it's, or even local clients, nothing is ever sequential. We never get a project and it just, it's five days in the studio and it just runs. Yeah. You'll you'll do three days on it. You'll send it for comments. They'll take two days to get back to you. So the advantage of the way I've restructured the way I work, freelancers can juggle it in between other projects. So yeah. I don't book them for a week's work. I say this is what has to be done and this is the deadline. You've got three weeks to execute a roughly five days' worth of work and we'll put together a schedule and a timeline based on giving the client plenty of downtime to come back with feedback and then we just hope, you know, they, they might have an hour's feedback one day and they're just all happy to get on and do it and then three hours the next and they juggle it in between other projects they're working on. And you come to this conclusion because... I was having downtime with full-time staff. Yeah. I think there's enough freelancers out there who are happy to work remotely. In fact, there's a lot. There's a few at the moment who are working with me who have got small kids. They love the opportunity to be at home. Yeah. I'm not watching their timesheets. They've agreed to do it for a fixed fee. Yeah. If it if it takes them less time, bully for them. If it takes them more time, well, they're at the same risk that I'm at from taking on the project. Yeah. I'm transparent about what the fees are. Everybody knows what everybody else is getting yeah. and it's a team effort. That has worked well for me in the past before. I think if people are working remotely though and they're in the comfort of their own home and they can feed it in amongst other projects, then they're less about, oh, I've done X amount of time. Yeah, definitely if you're working from your own studio at home, it's different to going into someone's office. Yes. Oh, if somebody's in the studio, um, I haven't done fixed fees before. I've only done fixed fees with people working remotely. Cool. All righty. So at the present time, do you think that broadcast budgets are sustainable? There's still a a huge amount of variance in broadcast budgets. I think we're still getting some clients that are prepared to throw some decent money at it. They're becoming fewer and fewer. I think the market is definitely becoming more competitive and it's turning from a stage where you're right, it's no longer sustainable for large studios it is much better as almost like it was when I first started out. Lots of small new kids on the block doing super creative stuff and happy to do things for smaller budgets, Yeah, um, which is great when you're young. When you're older and you've got a family and you've got a mortgage and this is a proper job, it's a bit more difficult. Yeah, well, I found that when I got out at Popcorn, my target, I think, was around $40,000 a month. Mm-hmm. And people would come to me with $5,000 less budget than they had before. Mm. And over that period, uh, I could see budgets were shrinking. Yep. Like clients were, and then they would go off and get someone to do it in-house. Yep, yep. On a freelance rate. Yep. And how do you as a small business compete with freelancers? And interestingly, I've had that happen with a client and it got to the end of the project and it was a disaster And the client came back and said, we've used this freelancer, it's all gone horribly wrong, here are all the files, can you fix it please? Yeah. I think sometimes they look and go, well, you're hiring freelancers to work on the project, so why can't we cut out the middleman and just get them directly? And they do, yeah. And they do. And then they underestimate how much creative direction you do, 
how much managing the files and how much understanding, how much support you offer the staff and the team that's working with you as a whole? It's a really dynamic time at the moment. But I do think if you're trying to have a professional income and earn, say, as a professional, and let's say a professional income is $100,000, you have to do a lot of projects Mm -hmm. to achieve that over 12 months. And Mm. I think that out there there's a lot of people who are working for under-professional rates. Yes, quite possibly, yep. Yeah, I think it's the age-old issue, though, where people don't value design. It's a lot of clients underestimate how much time goes into it. They they'll look at face value of of what you've delivered and they don't fully understand the effort behind it. They don't understand that we're not accountants and it's, you know, we're not doing a mere mathematical equation. We've You can't just sit down and turn it on. You don't just create that you need research time. You need time to look at reference and to understand the brief and to fully get your head into the right frame of mind before you can start to create. And I think that period of a project, the thinking time up front before you actually put pen to paper is undervalued by the client and difficult to quote on, as is I also think I always struggled to invoice and build into the price producer time. And really you do need someone hand-holding clients and constructively getting feedback and directing the designers and sometimes it's very difficult. Clients don't see the value in having the producers on board. That's interesting. Is the amount of work available increasing or decreasing? There's a lot more pitch work being asked of studios. There's a lot more projects that are 5,000 and less and that's very difficult. I mean, if you can do 20 of those in a, in a month, fine, but do you want to be doing those? So there's a lot of projects that have got very low profit margins on them and actually aren't creative to work on. So... I do think the industry is changing. I would say that's the case. That's what I see is that there's a lot more low-end work out there and there's a lot more work in general. Yep. But the high-end, medium projects, especially in broadcast design, are less. As the internet has changed and content creation has become something that most businesses are looking at. Rather than advertising, they're creating content. You would think that our industry would be changing. You would think that doing explainer videos would be a massive industry. And there are some people who are doing very well with those, but they're formulaic. They're templates. Um, And that's not what I started doing and that's not the type of work I'm interested in. So... The industry may have changed for me because um, there's a section of work that I'm not necessarily interested in just doing churn and burn stuff. So the creative projects are far less. We haven't done well at explaining to people how complicated motion design is. Mm -hmm. There's all the technology stuff, learning all the 3D programs, Cinema 4D and whatever. And then on top of that, there's also the soft skills of the stuff you're talking about, creative and producing. Mm. And then there's also the actual grunt work of crafting the creative. We're doing really complicated work and we're not selling that to the client and they're not understanding that. And that's why they're not charging as much. A lot of explainer films that we've done in the past were for quite complex topics. And they're not something that you can necessarily just easily illustrate. A lot of the um, concepts we're trying to get across with explainer videos 
uh, you need to use metaphorical illustrations of exactly what it is you're trying to articulate. Quite often that takes massively longer than just here is a simple illustration of what it is you're talking about. And I think they're the ones that the clients undervalue our skills. I also think if, if we're talking about explainer videos, they all have to start with an awesome script. And unless you have an awesome script, you are strategically bringing to life, you'll go nowhere with it. And I think script writing is something that we don't do in-house. I've got a selection of script writers that are very, very good at what they're doing. But even trying to get clients to pay for that, clients think they can write a script. I've got so many clients who are like, no, no, we don't need a script writer. I can do that. And it's like, no, you, you know, with all due respect, you really can't. <laughs> and it's because you've got templates that you can buy and it's because you've got people producing explainer films for two to 3000 that if you then turn around to a client and say, actually, it's going to cost you something like fifteen to $20, they are really oh. not happy to pay. I had brief come in and I looked at the scripts on explainers and just said, man, that's three, four weeks' work mm. to do it well. Yep. And, and they got like a budget for four days. Yes, yeah. In the future, do you think that boutique studios will be able to compete with remote workers and freelancers? I still think there is a value in coming to a boutique studio over a freelancer. What a boutique studio offers you is a consistent level of quality, consistent design aesthetic. Like you'll go to Buck. So, you know, people go to Buck. Um, and Buck wins work because they have an awesome aesthetic and they have a high standard of work. People who have got a strong reputation for quality and a particular aesthetic will continue to win work. The problem that boutique studios face is there isn't enough consistent high-quality projects to work on, so what do you do in the downtime? And it's that balance between the beautiful projects and the bread and butter that keeps you running as a studio. It's when the balance between those two becomes no longer sustainable that you have to pause and go, what are you doing? Yeah. Basically, the big concern with studios getting smaller is that there's no room for education. Yeah, and this is what I was talking to you earlier about mentorship. So many people, because there aren't a great deal of courses really that teach, in my experience in Melbourne and Sydney, you get places that will teach the technical side of things but not the design and then you'll get the design side but then they haven't got the backup of, you know, um, After Effects and cinema. So um, really people learn on the job. So unless you have the structure of a larger company and a mentorship, then it is a very difficult industry to maintain. I I agree with that totally, but I also think that having a team who's well-oiled and done many projects together that are always together, Mm. they can do some awesome stuff. Yeah, it's a lot harder when you bring a freelancer in you haven't worked with before and it's harder to actually get that flow going where they know what you're thinking and you know what they're thinking and it creates a good product. Yes, I would agree with that. When I use freelancers, I rarely go too far from a pool of tried and tested. I've got freelancers in Argentina who have spent time in the Melbourne office and know exactly how I work. I know how they work. It's a good rapport. There is a nervousness um, in using new people, absolutely. Fear. (laughs) I always, yeah. Describe what you think the broadcast industry will look like in the future as is many industries, they are moving to a model where people work more flexibly. 
I think setups like WeWork where people will uh, work more collaboratively in open studios and they'll rent desk spaces and they'll be part of a, a bigger design community could is a model that could work really well. So basically I would like to think in the future there would be studios still, mm-hmm. small to medium, where people can work together, collaborative spaces yep. where motion designers come together in a shared space yep. and then co-ops where they're cooperating together to get work. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, people working from home remotely, Yep, which is probably going to be the majority. I think so and I don't see why it can't work. You know, I like the flexibility of being able to do some work, put a load of washing on, go and stick some pea straw around my vegetables, come back, do some more work. Interestingly, I think freelancers are self-co-opting. I know Ted and Dan were recently both employed to work on the same project for a Sydney-based company and they both figured out they were working on it together and Dan took his gear and set up shop at Ted's house. Yeah. And that was great. You know, they work well together. It was better for them to be working as a team. Great outcome for the client to have both of them sitting next to each other. So what do you think of education? Do you think there's too many graduates coming out? And what do you think of international students? And are they good to employ? I graduated and I would say there were, I don't know how many in my year level, maybe 50 in the course, less than 10 got full-time jobs. Yeah, well, everyone I graduated with has worked in the industry. There was about 20 in the course. Right. And and those courses that used to have 20 and 50 now have hundreds. Yep. And they're at every university, not just Swinburne, Monash, mm-hmm. RMIT. And then there's all the private distributors. There's thousands coming out. But the, what you're saying is it, that before, there, isn't enough in, there isn't enough work in the industry to sustain that level of students. Definitely not. Not even close. Where When we came out back in the 90s, there was limited amount of university spots and it was capped. Yes. At like in the hundreds. Well, the other Victoria. issue. Now it's in the thousands. The other issue we have is that many university spots are taken up by international students who, when they graduate, you actually can't employ. There's some great talent coming out of universities who are internationally paid students. Yep. They would like to stay in Australia, but you can't employ them on a 457 visa because the requirements for a 457 visa is that they have industry experience. So yep. they need to be a qualified, uh, experienced person entering the workplace. So you can't justify that a student is that. And you have to pay them a minimum of 60000 and that's not a graduate salary in my yep. head. Yeah, You can't employ them and you have to show that they have all this work experience and they don't. Why is there so many female graduates and there's so many women working in the junior roles and then by the time you come senior, there's hardly anyone running studios or being senior? Uh, Boys tend to have more interest in 3D. They've grown up with a more gaming-based interest and therefore they're the ones that are learning 3D and moving into that motion graphics role. In my experience, there are more females in art direction, creative direction and producer roles. And this is a broad generalisation opposed to men tend to be more animation, design, 3D based. Interestingly, I had a very fiery student come up to me at the end of that um, NodeFest talk I did and asked me how outraged I was about the fact 
that 2119 had been commissioned to do the Fleur tampon ad and that surely in an industry where there is a small percentage of females, that would be the perfect project to commission a female for and wasn't it outrageous that they had got it? And my response to her, I was quite um, taken aback by the comment because I had never thought of projects as being gender-based. And my response to her was, well, if I can do FIFA, why can't, as a female, why can't men do tampons? Like, seriously, yeah. it, it seemed a bit of a ridiculous type of thing. But I think gender barriers are breaking down and I would hope that moving forward females feel as comfortable in a 3D role as men. I think it is just simply that we're still in generations where kids have grown up where their interests are a little bit more segregated and I see absolutely no reason why we can't have more female animators and 3D artists within the industry. I don't believe that the barrier is set by their opportunities. I think the barrier is set by the interests that they have been directed to as kids. Interesting. Does that make sense? It does make sense. I would hope that that is the scenario opposed to an industry that is not allowing them because it would be dreadful if if our industry doesn't equally promote females over males. Recently I've noticed that I have subconscious biases I often employ people who are similar to me. I'm going to put you on the spot here. Uh, have you got any biases? And when you're hiring staff, do you think about this? I have, in my experience, found females make better producers and I know that that is an unconscious bias I have and therefore I have always ensured that when interviewing for a producer role, I make sure I've got males in there that are part of the mix because I know I have an unconscious bias that I just think females organise better than males. There, I've said it out loud. The motion design industry and the football broadcast industry are very male-dominated professions, which over your career you've worked in at the highest levels. Has people treated you different to men in the industry? And do you think it's been harder for you as a female? I presented once at FIFA after Seb Blatter and presented to all the global broadcasters who were all invited to um, Zurich's headquarters, FIFA's Zurich headquarter, um, to present the rollout of their new on-air look for the first four-year package we did for FIFA. And it was the first time they had said to broadcasters, we're going to supply to you a package of graphics and this is what we would like you to use. So we were invited to come to FIFA, present to all the global broadcasters. Good old Seb got up and talked first and then I, and then I went on after him. And that was a fairly intimidating thing to do. And funnily enough, the head of broadcast sport for SBS from Australia was there and he came up to me afterwards and went, wow, what's a female from Australia doing working on FIFA? And it had not occurred to me until then. And then I was just like, what do you mean? And I went, do you know what? I'm I'm not a particularly sporty person. I'm not a football fan, but I love what I do and I'm passionate about what I do. And what got me across the line with FIFA, I don't, I think I was quirky and enthusiastic and that was enough for them to outweigh anything that was like, well, what's this crazy Australian chick, you know, saying she can do for us? 
So I think females, yeah, you probably do have situations where there are prejudices against you. You just got to counteract it with something else. So my counteraction to the what are you doing in a very male-dominated industry has always just been to ensure people understand that I, that I love it, that yeah. I love what I do and I'm super enthusiastic and I will over-deliver on every project yeah. and I will go above and beyond. And perhaps I unconsciously do that because I know I do have to compensate somewhere along the line for the fact that I'm not a super confident head of a business male. Yeah. Um, I'm the slightly crazy Aussie chick. Do you think that when you were having children and were pregnant that that affected your work in any way? <laughs> um, I had an emergency C-section with my first child. Uh, I was in the middle of three fairly major projects. I called the office 20 minutes after having a C-section and briefed them on what I needed to happen for the next few days and then I continued to call them. Evidently my speech got more and more slurred as the morphine was kicking in. And I remember Imogen saying to me, do you really want to talk about this now? (laughs) I'm like, yes, (laughs) because I don't, you know. Yeah, I sat up in hospital and did storyboards for Guinness having just given birth. I'm nuts. Which is a bit of a sad story for balance there. Oh, but, absolutely. Yeah. And um, and that was because it was an emergency C-section because um, my first was over six weeks early. And you worked right up to the end? Well, it was over six weeks early. I wasn't even ready. I'd barely oh, okay. bought a pram. Okay. Um, so I did work right up until the end. I literally was in the, ho- in the office and had to go straight to hospital. Uh, is that the ideal way to do things? Far from it. But that was the practicality of having a small company and and actually only two full-time members of staff and a massive contract with FIFA. And did the FIFA people know you, you were pregnant? I went over and pitched to FIFA for 2006 World Cup and I tried to hide the fact that I was pregnant. I thought I got away with it. There was lots of big storyboards and a very large coat and Ed, who worked for me, was very young at the time as well. So it was not just the combination of me being pregnant, but it was me pregnant and my designer who I literally bought him a suit to wear to the meeting. And he did look like my first day in court because <laughs> clean shaved, he looked about 12. So we were a motley crew, but it obviously didn't perturb them. They gave us the job. They came and, and checked out the London studio and walked in the door and said, well, that your, your bumps got bigger. So they yeah. clearly knew when they awarded us the job that yeah. I was pregnant. Which is pretty awesome. Which was pretty awesome, actually. Yeah. Did you take much time after it? No. 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 Are you happy about this in retrospect? Owning your own business, you can't just walk out the door and apply for maternity leave. You don't get the opportunity to just say, see you in 12 months. You have a responsibility not just to your clients but to your staff, which is why when I had my second baby, I made sure I had better systems in place. Um, I took six months off. I brought Sophie on board to cover for me whilst I was on maternity leave. Have you ever been discriminated against and treated differently because you're a woman? Not that I know of because I think I would have been really ropeable if I felt that I hadn't won a job because I was a female. Look, UEFA was pretty tough. 
And there have been times where I have thought strategically about who to take to a meeting. So when Sophie and I, so it's not just me as a single woman, uh, you understand that my business partner in the UK was also a female. Yeah. There were particular projects that we would think about who to take with us. So we, it's not something that I'm oblivious to. I'm very conscious about it. And it's sad to think that Sophie and I, as business partners, going to a meeting with UEFA have to strategically pull in a freelance male just because we feel like we won't be taken seriously without them. And, and and that's not because I think UEFA discriminated, it's just we are making strategic decisions about who to take with you. And, and it's a shame that we all think in those terms. It's a shame that we think in gender. Yeah. So what would your advice be to women who would like to have a career in motion design? I actually think international experience is the most important thing to get. Unfortunately, I do still think that the motion design industry in Australia is behind the rest of the world. And if people want to get a head start in this country, I think a stint in the UK or in America would serve them well. Cool. All right. And what would you say to women who want to be leaders and want to run their own studios and manage their own places? is to be confident in your own opinions and your own abilities and to stand your ground. Do you think that people approach confident women differently to confident men? There's a really dreadful term that people use, which is alpha female. And often you'll have people, and I, you know, and I've been in these discussions, you're going to present to a client. Um, and if you're going to present to a big client, you'll do your research on who you're going in to meet. Yeah. People will always try and figure out if the female you're presenting to is alpha or not. We never have those discussions about men. Yeah. We never go, is he an alpha male or not? What I find disappointing and unsupportive is the way people refer to females as alpha females or not and they there is a particular approach to dealing with these said alpha females. And this is not exclusive to our industry by any stretch. And an alpha female really is somebody who is just strong. And I don't think that should be something that we should be fearful or discriminatory of. Why did you decide to downsize your Melbourne studio? I'm not going to call it a downsize. I'm going to call it a side size. (laughs) A side size. I've gone sideways. Because I think the industry has changed. I think the types of projects, I stopped and decided that they weren't what I was getting enjoyment from. I came to a stage where it was either grow it again or call it quits. And I have been doing this for 20 years. And weirdly, the industry has changed a lot, but not very much at all. And I asked myself if I can see myself doing the same thing for the next 20 and I can't. I felt like I was in a bit of a repetitive rush and things weren't moving forward and the projects weren't becoming more exciting and the profit margins aren't huge and really didn't justify the amount of time, hours and stress that I, you know, there's a reason why businesses offer people long service leave after 10 years of work and I... As I said earlier, I didn't take any maternity leave 
or very little maternity leave with my kids. Um, my eldest has just started high school and I think that's a really important time to be around more, although I've not stopped completely. This is my break and I hope to use it as an opportunity to rethink what I'm doing and perhaps look to taking on a more consultant-based role, which is focusing more on tapping into the knowledge and experience that I have rather than me selling other people's services. What do you think lies in the future for you? The opportunity of having some downtime in the uh, Christmas, January period to really um, focus on what I would like to do next and which direction I would like to take the business in. Well, that sounds like a fantastic place to leave it. Thanks very much for taking your time and um, it's been great to come and see your beautiful house and chat with you about your experience in the industry. Thanks very much, Annabelle. Thanks, Matthew. If you like this podcast, it would be fantastic if you could go to iTunes and give us a positive review. It helps other people find us. You can check us out at mastersofmotion.com.au where you can see all the work that we talked about today and lots more outstanding motion design work. You can find out more about Annabelle at tiltcreative.com.au. very much for listening. I hope you have a great week. This is emotion. Bye-bye.